Hello everyone, welcome back to Europa Watch, the mini-series where we talk about Jupiter's moon Europa every time there is something to do with the Europa mission in Season 2 of Star Trek Picard. Well, a deep dive into Picard's mind, and the birth of a new Borg queen later, we finally returned to the Europa mission in the final episode of Season 2. We witnessed the launch of the rocket carrying Rene Picard and her crew to that icy moon. And we even got a glimpse of Europa itself, hanging like a jewel in orbit of Jupiter. Now, these Europa Watch episodes are usually impromptu recordings, but for the last episode of this miniseries, I thought I'd return to my normal interview style because of some exciting news. Adriana Gomez-Buckley, an early career researcher whom I mentored at the University of Washington, just published a study using a computer model to simulate hypothetical ecosystems of bacteria and viruses in Europa's subsurface ocean. If you want to read it, you can find a link to her paper in the show notes. We published it in an open access journal, which means it's free for anyone to download and check out. Okay, before we get to the interview, I just want to say it's literally the best part of my job to help pave the way for students and mentees, to encourage their curiosity and scientific pursuits, to see them tackle and overcome challenging problems, and to watch them soar to new heights. I'm so proud of Adriana for sticking by this project two and a half years in the making. And as her advisor, I know all about the details of this work. But for the sake of this interview for this podcast, I'm going to pretend to know absolutely nothing and let Adriana do all of the explaining. Engage. Adriana Gomez-Buckley, welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to speak to you about your latest work, all about viruses and bacteria on uh, Europa. Uh, but before we do that, let's get to know you a little bit more. Usually I start off with a question about Star Trek and what you've been doing in terms of watching that. I know because when I was working at the University of Washington as a postdoc, where you are right now, uh, you mentioned that during the pandemic, you started watching Star Trek The Next Generation. So what was it like to discover what's inside of this classic science fiction show a whole 35 years after it first aired? Well, it's been like super awesome and it just makes it sting more that they recently took it off of Netflix. So I can't actually oh, watch no. it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that really sucks. Um, Cause I was like on season four or five, I think when they took it off, but yeah, anyways, I, I really love this show. I think it's my favorite Star Trek that I've watched because actually back in high school, I watched the original series. Like I did a whole binge of that and I watched all the associated movies and everything. And I really enjoyed it. Um, but this one I think is my favorite. Data and Jordy are just, <laughs> I love, I love yeah. when they're on screen. Um, but yeah, no, I just, it's really kind of driven home the fact that science fiction as like a vehicle for kind of examining like what we want out of the future, I guess, like what's our kind of ideal future, what's like our fears for the future. And also just kind of like 
as an allegory for like what's going on like now like currently even I think there was like a lot of stuff in this show that even applies to situations that are going on nowadays even though it's 35 years old like you can take a lot of lessons from it I think so it's just been like super cool to see how like applicable it still is I guess to the the current day besides just being like a super fun show to watch and yeah I'm hoping to get through all of the movies too and and start Picard as well yeah absolutely that's really a shame that they took it off of Netflix. I think I what they're probably trying to do is make you subscribe to Paramount Plus, but who needs yeah. another <laughs> streaming service these days? You know? um, and that's so true about what you said. Like, that there's so many themes in Star Trek, both TNG, but then also like the original series going all the way back to the 60s, those themes that are just timeless and stay with us and keep on delivering really pertinent messages for the present. I hope you get to watch the rest of it sometime and, you know, see all the movies and then jump right into Picard. Yes, I hope so too. Well, uh, so this current season of Star Trek Picard actually takes place two years from now <laughs> in 2024. <laughs> so basically what's happened is that our heroes from the future have come back in time to try to protect the sanctity of our timeline by ensuring that a mission to Europa launches as planned, while the devilish Q, who's sort of the antagonist this season, tries to stop this mission from happening. And that will precipitate the change in the timeline that actually sends humanity way off course and the wonderful Star Trek future ceases to exist. So this Europa mission in Picard is different from the real-life Europa Clipper mission that NASA is actually building and going to launch in 2024 uh, in that the mission in Picard is a crewed mission. So it's going to have human astronauts on it, whereas NASA's mission to Europa is just going to be a robotic spacecraft. Well, I shouldn't say just a robotic spacecraft because spacecraft are awesome and they also take a lot of hard work. And I know some of the engineers who are working on this mission and they're pouring their uh, their souls into it. Um, but, but it is not a human mission that is actually going to launch in 2024. Uh, so my question for you, Adriana, is as someone who loves space, as someone who loves Europa, would you sign up to go on a Europa mission yourself if that were a possibility? Or is being an astronaut something that you aren't interested in? That's a great question. And uh, yeah, it's a shame that we're not that technologically advanced that we could just send people right now because I would, I would love that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah um, so Europa, I don't know if I'd sign up to go all the way to Europa. It would kind of depend on how long it took to get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in general, being an astronaut, actually is something that I would consider doing in my life if I could. Um, yeah, I think that when I first kind of got into the idea of astronomy, um, when I was in high school, like about to graduate, and I thought, you know, maybe I should major in astronomy. Um, back then, I kind of was thinking about, you know, what would the timeline be like for me to actually go to the International Space Station someday? Or like, if at the time they're going to the moon or Mars, like I might even consider that like those trips are, are longer, but I think still a bit better than Europa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think like maybe being an astronaut is something that I would like to do at some point in my life if things work out that way. And yeah, a lot of uh, people kind of would ask me like, you know, aren't you scared of, of space? And um, I understand that fear, but 
I actually want to bring up Interstellar, which is like one of my my favorite space movies. Um, oh, me too. And yeah, yeah it's, it's such a good movie. I, I love it. But yeah, there was like a quote from that or kind of a scene from that that um, I always kind of think back to, which is when Romilly, who's one of the um, astronauts on this mission, um, is talking to Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, and uh, he's kind of freaking out and saying like, oh, there's just this little wall between me and like millions of miles of nothing and I'm like, yeah, that's a really valid fear. But then what Matthew McConaughey says is, oh, do you realize that some of the finest solo yachtsmen can't actually swim? So it's like their boat is the kind of wall between millions of miles of just death, like water and drowning. So, and he says to Rombley something like, uh, we're, we're explorers, this is our ship. So I kind of, I like that because it kind of makes you think like, yes, space is very scary, but it's also um, kind of similar to the ocean that he's talking about. It's just so fascinating. Like there's just so much out there and it's kind of like awe-inspiring. So yeah, and I also always go back to the pale blue dot quote from Carl Sagan. And I think that being able to be like one of the handful of humans that is able to see the whole sphere of earth, my own two eyes is just something that would be so like humbling and, and cool to experience. So yeah, maybe being an astronaut is in the cards for me at some point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both of those, um, you know, the interstellar uh, quote and also the Carl Sagan quote are beautiful sentiments. I completely agree. I would love to go up there and see our blue marble from outer space uh, just hanging there in the dark. Um, although these days it seems like you'd be closer to getting to space if you majored in something very lucrative <laughs> rather than astronomy. So maybe we chose the wrong major in order to get to space, ironically, by studying space. Um, but, uh, but maybe in our lifetimes, there will be an opportunity for us to go, hopefully for scientific purposes. Maybe our, our passions in science will actually lead us there. That is my dream as well. Speaking of scientific passions, you've just published your first first author paper. Congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. And surprise, surprise, it's about Europa. So as an astrobiologist, why is Europa such a fascinating planetary body to you? I think Europa in particular is just so perfect and like so fascinating as like a study in astrobiology, just because well, obviously astrobiology is you're searching for life on other planets, other worlds. And, you know, a lot of what we base our search on is earth, earth analogs, kind of like places similar to earth conditions for life that work on earth that might work elsewhere. Um, because really, you know, we have no other examples. So we always have to refer back to earth. And, um, sometimes like when you were talking about astrobiology, you might hear a lot about extremophiles and their organisms that can survive in, many different extreme environments. So like, you know, someplace that's like too hot for most life or too cold or too uh, saline for most life. But you always kind of come back to the fact that life on earth needs water, at least some water. So tying that back to Europa, Europa is kind of perfect in my eyes because it's this like watery world that has this saltwater ocean. And also it's such a perfect analog um, that we can use like earth for just because earth's arctic ocean is such like similar environment that we can kind of apply to our studies on europa so for those two reasons i think it's really just such a great place to study and like look for life but 
also, um, I think the fact that it's not an exoplanet, it's something that's within our reach. And like you said, we have the Europa Clipper mission coming up and then hopefully more lander missions in the future. So yeah, I just think that it's perfect because not only is it this perfect analog and it has water, which is just such a like important thing for life as we know it, but it's also within our reach. Yeah, those are all really, really important points. I guess decades ago, people would have never imagined a world like Europa being a prime location to look for life. Those worlds out there, tiny little moons orbiting Jupiter, which is a gas giant so far away from the sun. How could you possibly think liquid water? And then thank you, you know, (laughs) tidal energy and dissipation and physics for giving us the ability to heat up the interiors of some of those moons and, and give us an environment basically that isn't too dissimilar, hopefully, from the Arctic, like you said. So amazing. Yeah. Um, so this paper that you wrote was about modeling the role of viruses and the role that they might play in a hypothetical biosphere in Europa's ocean. So tell me a little bit more about this study, how you constructed the study and what you found. Right. Okay. So our initial concept that we had was thinking about you know, obviously, like you said, Europe is very far away from the sun. It has this ice layer covering the ocean. So it's not going to look exactly like our oceans on earth. There's not going to be kind of photosynthesis going on. So we would think that this is going to start with more of like a chemosynthetic thing at the bottom of the food chain. So we were thinking about, you know, could hydrothermal vents on the bottom of this ocean create enough nutrients to support life in this ocean. And not only that, but could these nutrients make it to the surface so that we would see kind of life underneath the ice, um, kind of like what we would see in a lot of Arctic environments, um, especially with like microbial mats, which is where you have these kind of microbes growing on the underside of the ice and kind of supporting life there. So that was kind of our initial thought. And we had to do like a lot of calculations to make sure that like the time scales would work out for um, getting this dissolved organic matter from this hydrothermal vents at the bottom up to the surface. And then we luckily had uh, someone from oceanography, Dr. Max Showalter, who actually had a model for microbes, uh, bacteria and viruses, and how they interacted within the sea ice in the Arctic. So our next step was kind of taking that model and applying it to Europa by kind of putting parameters that matched conditions that we think would, would be like on Europa. So after modeling that, we were able to kind of tell like, yeah, we actually can have a system that's supported underneath this ice. Um, We would have these microbes in a steady state, which means that they're not just like having runaway growth and they're not declining over time. They're actually staying steady over time. And the nutrients from the hydrothermal vents would actually be enough to support this life underneath the ice, um, which was just such a huge find, I think. And not only that, but, you know, I want to note that our study was kind of simple because it's only taking into account these nutrients from the hydrothermal vents. And there are more nutrients that could come in from the surface too. Like you have all this radiation from Jupiter hitting the surface of Europa and creating these, these oxidants that are like really good kind of source of energy for reactions that fuel life. So these things can get kind of subducted, like they'll convect down through the ice and get put down in the ocean. So there's even more nutrients than just from these theoretical hydrothermal vents. Like there could be some coming in from the surface, which I think just makes the overall prospect of life 
being able to thrive on Europa so much stronger. And specifically viruses, how did they impact this system? Were they crucial for the uh, maintenance of the system for its viability over time? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So viruses were kind of a big role. Um, So in Earth's Arctic, particularly what our collaborator was modeling, um, he was modeling life within these little brine pockets, these little pockets of like super salty water within the ice in the Arctic. And viruses play a key role there because um, you have obviously a fixed uh, amount of nutrient that your bacteria can feed off of. So eventually that's going to run out, but viruses actually prolong the amount of time that the bacteria can survive in this little closed pocket, this closed system, just because the viruses kind of keep the bacteria from having this runaway growth. Like they kind of keep the population in check. And also when the viruses kind of lyse a bacteria, which means that they kind of like rip it apart as they kind of like multiply and come out, they create more dissolved organic matter, um, which means that they actually kind of add to this nutrient supply. So viruses play this kind of crucial role in creating dissolved organic matter. And they were important on Europa as well, because our whole concept kind of rested on viruses in like the ocean deep, creating this dissolved organic matter that would then kind of get shuttled by currents and just kind of make its way up to this sub-ice layer and support life there. So yeah, viruses are a very crucial part to this. It's not just bacteria. That's super fascinating. It makes me really wonder about the role of viruses ecologically. Right now, obviously, viruses are on everybody's mind because we're in this two years and counting pandemic that has disrupted a lot of human life around the globe. But it sounds like that on Europa, viruses actually play kind of a role in promoting the stability and the longevity of living systems. I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that maybe unexpected outcome. I can definitely say that before I started this study, I would have never thought of viruses in this fashion. Like, you know, the fact that viruses can actually be helpful to like keeping a system kind of, um, I guess not in check, like keeping a system in check. I think that I had heard kind of similar things happening before. Um, I think one that actually comes to mind, this is very random, but like the cordyceps fungus, um, this is a completely different thing, but I remember just watching in planet earth that like, when the certain insect population actually kind of started getting like a little bit large, that was when like the cordyceps was more likely to strike and actually kind of keep the population in check. So the fact that viruses can keep the population in check, like on Europa, that's like not super surprising to me. Um, But the fact that they just contribute so much to the longevity, I think was like the most surprising part of this for me, just because Um, If you took like viruses out of the equation, this system would like, I don't know, some of them would last like, you know, days and then they just crash out like the the nutrient would be gone and these bacteria would just die immediately. But the fact that viruses could actually prolong the longevity of these little closed systems for so long was just super fascinating. You have a degree in astronomy, and for this project, you mentioned that you partnered with Dr. Max Showalter, who is an oceanographer from the UW Oceanography Department. Astronomers and oceanographers don't usually have very much to say to each other. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of interdisciplinarity in this line of research? Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Astrobiology, I think, is just one of the most interdisciplinary fields out there. 
And I certainly had to learn a lot when I came into this project because I came in with a very kind of astronomy and physics oriented background. And one of the first things that I had to learn when I was kind of learning about Europa and the conditions there, um, I had to learn like a lot of chemistry, like redox reactions. Um, I hadn't taken chemistry since high school and no chemistry classes were required for my degree. So I had to pick up a lot on that. Like you said, oceanography played like a huge role. And just astrobiology in general is just so good for bringing like these fields together, I think, because really you could have everything from like geology to biology to atmospheric sciences, like this all plays a role in looking for life on other worlds. And I just love that it can do that, that it can bring these fields together, because like you said, I would have never thought that I'd be talking or collaborating with an oceanographer in my work (laughs) when I first went into astronomy. but astrobiology, I think, just creates such good opportunities for scientific collaboration and kind of furthering the field because, it, you know, you have to really just draw from all of these different areas of science if you're going to look for life on other worlds. There's just so much that influences it here on Earth. You have to really take all that into account when you're looking at other places. I like to say that life is a planetary process and yes. it definitely <laughs> takes all of those subdisciplines to understand it. So like we mentioned, NASA is planning on sending a mission to Europa called the Clipper, which will launch in 2024, just like the Europa mission in Star Trek Picard. The recent Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey also strongly recommended a future mission to orbit and land on Saturn's moon Enceladus, which is sort of a similar world, an ice-covered ocean world, although quite a bit smaller than Europa, uh, but with the benefit of having these plumes, these perennial plumes that are constantly spraying uh, material from that subsurface ocean into space. So the decadal survey said, we've got to go to Enceladus to look for extraterrestrial life. I was wondering what broad implications for searching for life on these types of icy bodies, both Europa and Enceladus, might your findings have? Yes, this was a great question, uh, because I do think that we had kind of a couple of very big implications that we found with our work. So the first one was kind of when we were focusing on our kind of closed system environment, like we were modeling what would life look like in a little pocket of like salt water within the ice on Europa, where you have just like a fixed nutrient pool. So one of the implications from that kind of told us that this system isn't going to last long enough to actually, you know, convect back to the surface. Like if you have your ice kind of like moving and kind of like cycling and overturning, um, this little pocket isn't going to make it to the surface with like live bacteria and viruses in it. They will be dead. And maybe you can sample some kind of like organic matter from there, but you're not going to see an actually active system. So this first big implication kind of told us that if we have lander missions that are looking for life and they want to see kind of an active system, they should probably be looking in that sub-ice region. Like they are going to want to probably drill down a little ways to actually see these bacteria and viruses in action. The other implication I think that was very important was the whole behavior of the bacteria and virus populations, because in the system, we noticed that they kind of peaked They'd have these like population peaks where they grew really fast, kind of plateaued, and then they would drop off and there would be kind of like a lull where it would look like there was basically nothing alive in between these peaks. And the time between these peaks was like pretty significant. It was like about like a month 
between peaks for some of these systems or some of our, our model runs. So this other implication, um, we kind of used the wildflower blooms in, in Death Valley as an analogy for this. Um, it's not kind of like an exact, you know, one-to-one -one analogy, but you can think about it kind of in the same way, because let's say you were to go to Death Valley and just walk around when there was no wildflower bloom happening, you would say, this place is dead. There's nothing going on here. But if you were to just wait a little bit and you saw the actual wildflower bloom, you'd realize there's actually life there. It just wasn't active at the time. So the implication here on Europa is that if we're going to be sampling for life, we have to make sure that we're looking for a long enough time or maybe taking samples far enough apart that like we could actually see life. Because if you take a sample, when there's this lull between population peaks, you're just not going to see anything. You might just get a false negative and say, there's nothing going on here. This is dead. And yeah, I think that that's another very big kind of implication. The third one, um, and maybe like slightly more controversial, I know that like there's this whole argument of like, do viruses count as life? <laughs> but really, I think that the third implication that you could say our study had was that maybe we shouldn't just sample for microbial life or just count, you know, like bacteria as a sign of life. I think that if we find or look for viruses, like that's another important thing to consider. Like we talked about before, they play such an important role. And, you know, I don't think you can really have viruses there without bacteria, you know, to help them reproduce or like populate. So yeah, I'd say that the third implication would kind of just be that we should also include viruses in our search for life or count them as like kind of an important thing to look for on these icy worlds. You won't get any argument from me. I, <laughs> I mean, just imagine going all the way to Europa, sending a multi-billion dollar spacecraft, whether it has a human or not, and finding a virus. How could you not say that that's life? Right. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely found evidence of a living system, even if you don't say, if, even if in whatever definition of life you're using, that particular entity is not alive. I mean, like you said, it can't be there unless you have things that can support it, namely the host that it replicates in. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I might be a little biased, but yes, I, I, would, <laughs> I would include viruses in my, my search for life. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds today, Adriana. It was a pleasure to speak to you and learn all about your latest paper on modeling virus and bacteria populations in the subsurface ocean of Europa. I hope you get the opportunity one day to be an astronaut and to perhaps go and visit Europa yourself to prove your hypothesis correct. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Now, I have a very special announcement. This may have been the last episode of Europa Watch, the miniseries. But there will be one last full-length Europa Watch episode. That's right, I have contacted the project scientist for NASA's Europa Clipper mission, Bob Papillardo. And he's agreed to beam aboard Strange New Worlds to talk all about the real-life Europa mission, as well as his enormous love for Star Trek. Thing is, Bob is an extraordinarily busy human being, so we'll try to make this podcast episode happen sometime over the summer. 
to look out for one final Europa Watch episode just over the horizon. You can follow today's guest, Adriana Gomez-Buckley, on Twitter at Astro underscore A-G-B. You can follow me at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and you can also follow this show on Twitter at Science of Trek. That's at Science of Trek. Our podcast now has a Twitter handle because hashtag Strange New Worlds belongs to, well... Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the TV show, which I hope you are all enjoying, because I know I definitely am. And with that, thank you for listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Stay healthy, stay curious, and I'll... Wait, I think I'll let Q have the last word on this one. See you out there.